Our topic this morning is a uh, Christian view of war and peace. This is a very uh, timely as well as a very tough uh, topic, and I'm sure there's going to be some dis- disagreement among us. And uh, as always, we need to uh, uh, comport ourselves with civility and, and uh, love and understanding, though we may disagree. I was involved in working with students in the San Francisco Bay Area during the uh, Vietnam era, and uh, much, much of our time was spent discussing this issue, and during those years I developed a very tough skin. So uh, if you disagree with me, that's, uh, that's perfectly all right. But I hope we won't disagree about issues that are clearly delineated in Scripture. We, we as Christians may have, uh, we may have large areas of disagreement outside of Scripture and even in our interpretation of Scripture. But where the Bible is clear, we need to be very clear uh, and maintain what one man has called a Christian mind. One of the purposes in doing this series of, uh, of messages on contemporary topics is that I want all of us to, to develop a Christian mind. Now, by a Christian mind, I don't mean a mind that is, that's preoccupied with thinking about specifically Christian things or even religious topics. It's rather a mind that thinks about everything from, uh, from a Christian standpoint, from a biblical uh, perspective. It doesn't make a difference whether we're talking about uh, war or, or baseball or anything else. We ought to uh, view it from a Christian point of view. And that's our goal in these, uh, in these discussions. One of the problems in a 30-minute message is that, that it's very easy to oversimplify uh, matters. And uh, that, may be the, that may be true this morning. I am in the process of writing a paper which will spell out more fully some of my ideas. That uh, will be available ho- hopefully for you next week. And uh, uh, perhaps will clarify some of the things that we're not able to uh, talk about this morning. Uh, Historically, Christians have had two ways of looking at the issue of of war and peace. Some have been total pacifists. That is, they believe that the teaching and example of of Jesus commit us to nonviolent love. We can, under no set of circumstances, defend ourselves or resort to violence. That Jesus' way is the way of peace. Um, most recently, that that uh, that idea has been popularized by the film Gandhi because Gandhi's beliefs, though he was not at all a Christian, his beliefs are based upon one segment of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel, and uh, that's where I want you to turn uh, to begin because we need to understand what Jesus is saying in that passage, Matthew five, the section of the Sermon on the Mount probably the most well-known advocate of this point of view is the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, um, who was an across-the-board pacifist, as you know. And he drew that conclusion from these uh, teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5. You know well the uh, Beatitude in uh, 5.9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And then Jesus elaborates in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy and, uh, love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And those who are total pacifists believe that this is not only a personal ethic, but an ethic that needs to be applied to national, international uh, politics as well. Many people, for example, advocate unilateral nuclear disarmament on the part of the United States now as a gesture of love and goodwill toward the Soviets. They feel that if we did that sort of thing, then, then the Soviets would act in kind. They would disarm. And they base that teaching on, on this, this passage in Matthew 5. By and large, they do. Not all pacifists are Christian pacifists. But there are many who are. And uh, they're genuine Christians. Uh, I have many, uh, many friends among them who are across-the-board pacifists. And I'm, I'm proud to call them sons and, and uh, or brothers and, and sisters, sons of God. But for myself, I believe that total pacifism is neither biblical nor realistic because it's based on an incomplete induction from Scripture. That is, they have not gathered up all of the teachings on this topic from Scripture. One of the principles that, uh, the, uh, that the Reformers acted upon and been passed on to us is the idea of the analogy of Scripture. You don't base uh, you're thinking on merely one passage of Scripture, but on the total teaching of Scripture on this issue. And when you look, for example, at, the, uh, at Jesus' life, there were, there's at least one instance where he was not nonviolent. Not only was he violent in word, but he was violent in deed. When other rights were at stake, he uh, became rather uh, violent in the temple. Took a, a rope and knotted it into a whip and he drove the money changers from the from the temple. So Jesus himself was not always nonviolent. And the interesting thing is that as you read through the New Testament, you see that the attitude toward uh, men of war, military people, soldiers, was, was almost universally positive. Jesus referred to the centurion who appealed to him for help as a man of great faith. He said, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. And when soldiers came to John the Baptist to ask what they should do to enter the kingdom of heaven, John did not say, lay aside your arms. He said, uh, be content with your wages and don't oppress those that you serve and don't extort money from them. In other words, be a, be a good soldier, be a faithful servant of the state. And uh, centurions throughout the rest of the New Testament, in, in the book of Acts, for example, are, are always looked upon with, uh, with approval. Now, the classic passage for a discussion of this issue is Romans 13, and that's where I'd like to have you turn uh, this morning. That puts things in balance. It, uh, it says it all. The interesting thing to me about this passage is that Paul places uh, uh, in the prior context the issue of a personal ethic of peacemaking and nonviolence with the responsibility of the state. Let me begin reading with verse 14 of chapter 12, the prior context, the paragraph that precedes chapter 13. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of, of low position. In other words, don't be a snob. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You, you note uh, in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. And verse 18, live at peace with everyone. Christians are to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. It's a citation from, uh, from the law, from Deuteronomy, to confirm Paul's teaching that that God's wrath, we need to leave room for God's wrath. And we say, well, what, what do we do when, when we have a personal enemy? Should we just take it? Paul says, no. No, there is a, an offensive action that, that we can take. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. In other words, the best way to handle an enemy is to make a friend out of him. Do something loving for him. Now, some would say, therefore, that this is the stance that we ought to take as a nation toward our national enemies. But Paul precludes that argument in, by chapter 13. Read on. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against, God, uh, against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. In other words, not because of the consequences of our disobedience, but uh, out of good conscience toward God. We have an obligation not only to the state, but to God, because he has handed over authority uh, to the state. Now, the interesting thing about the placement of these two paragraphs is that what is forbidden to us as individuals in chapter 12, personal revenge, is mandated uh, on the state. It, it's the duty of the state to avenge uh, injustice and to set things right, to maintain law and order and justice. Jesus and the apostles were the ultimate realists. They, they, they realized that we live in a fallen, sinful world, and without uh, force, without law and order and the use of force, Men would destroy themselves. It's utterly unrealistic to think that we can live without law and without the force necessary to carry out that law. The result would be anarchy. Now, there's always some debate about how much law we should have. And that I'm not even going to try to discuss this morning because I'd get myself in big trouble if, if I did. There are those who feel we have too much law. There, there are those that feel that we have too little law. But the point is you have to have law. Law and order is necessary, given the fact that the human race has fallen. Now, it seems to me that the heart of the issue in this passage is that the state has the right to use force in order to maintain order in society. And without the state, there would be no civilization. 
And that force, that, that right to uh, maintain order, is a God-given right. It's not something that the state usurps. It's a God-given right. Taking a closer look at the, at the teaching, there are three or four things I think Paul is, is saying. The first is that authority is given to the state by God. The scriptures clearly teach us that God is the one who raises up certain nations, determines their lifespan and, and the limits of their territory. That's taught in the book of Acts. So that behind the historical movements of nations is the sovereign activity of God. Nothing happens without his control. He controls everything. All political, political historical, national events are under his control. And he gives nations the authority to rule. But more specifically, he gives individuals the right to rule. You'll notice that, he, that not only is authority, the principle of authority given, but the people are given as well. The authorities, the powers that be, we say, are, uh, are given the right to rule. They have divine right to rule. That's what Paul is saying. Now, you have to remember that Nero was on the throne when Paul wrote these words. He'd come to the throne just a, a few years before. And everyone knows Nero's uh, reputation. He was one of the great monstrous tyrants of history. Evil, despicable man. He slaughtered his own family to come to the throne. He, uh, as you know, fiddled while, uh, while Rome burned. He actually set the city on fire, historians believe, and then blamed the Christians so he could uh, rebuild it to his own, own glory. And yet, Paul says, well aware of who was on the throne of the Roman Empire, that the authorities are appointed by God. And this is true even in, uh, in a state such as ours where the elective process is in, is in order. We may elect, but it's God who gives men the right to rule. Now, he doesn't commend everything that, that rulers do. What he's saying is that there has to be authority and there, ha there have to be authorities. They're, they're there not by accident, not by the elective process solely, but they're there because God has appointed them. The alternative to the state is anarchy. Some government is better than no government. That's what God is saying. Even the worst of governments hold in check the evil of men. Now, this is true not only of our national leaders, but of our local leaders, our governor, our mayor, our magistrates, our police officers, game wardens, uh, dog catchers, uh, perhaps even the umpire in uh, city league uh, softball games. Those are the authorities that are appointed and they rule by uh, divine sanction. Now, that seems to me clearly what Paul is saying. I don't, I don't, I don't see any other way to read this, this passage. Uh, it's inferred by this passage that, uh, that those authorities have the right to uh, enact laws. That's what our legislative process is for. To arrive at just, equitable laws to govern society. Without those laws, civilization couldn't endure uh, Judd Lund and I were bouncing around in the desert uh, last uh, week, and we were discussing a, a conversation in the, in the play, A Man for All Seasons, where Sir Thomas More was talking to his, baiting his son-in-law, actually, over some issue of law and legality. His son-in-law had misunderstood More's purposes. And, and he makes a statement, uh, I will chop down every law in pursuit of the devil. 
And Lord says to his son-in-law, And when you have chopped down every law, and the devil turns on you, what will you do then? Where will you stand in the winds that will blow then? And Moore was right. See, without law, we're, we're at sea. We, we would just destroy ourselves. You, uh, civilization as we know it would simply cease to exist. But more importantly, and this is stated specifically in the passage, not only does the state have the right to enact laws, they have the right to bear the sword in order to see to it that those laws are obeyed. Now, in the Roman Empire, the sword was an instrument of capital punishment. That's the way you kill people. And Paul is saying that in the pursuit of justice and truth, a life may have to be taken by the state. We cannot, as individuals, avenge ourselves, but the state has the divine right, has a, divine, a, godly, a God-given divine right to punish evildoers, even if it means taking a human life. Now, we need to understand something as Christians. We Christians do not believe that preservation of human life is the highest good. That's not the highest value. The preservation of truth and justice and righteousness is a much higher value. As James puts it, the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable. So you may have to um, temporarily disrupt peace in order to maintain uh, purity. Now, if you stop and think about it for a moment, if human life or the preservation of human life is the highest good, none of us would, would be saved today. Because in the pursuit of our salvation, uh, the life of the Son of God was taken. cost a human life in order to enact, to, to bring about righteousness for us. And uh, Scripture's full of uh, injunctions and you know, stories to the effect that uh, we ought to give up our life in the pursuit of, of justice. That laying down one's life for another is, is a good thing where it accomplishes some, uh, where, where it brings about truth and order and justice. So what we're saying is that the state as a last resort and with great reluctance may have to go to war in order to make peace. Now that's the odd irony in all of this that you, sometimes you have to make war to, to make peace and and, and war-making is a legitimate function of, of peacemakers at times. It, it doesn't seem right. But given the fact that we live in a, a world where men are at one another's throats and some men will not uh, make peace, we, we may have to go to war. But only as a last resort. And never because we want to. Always with great reluctance. Christians are not warmongers. Uh, some of you may remember the scene in Patton where he and his aides are walking through a, a, a battleground in North Africa and there are burned out tanks and bodies strewn everywhere and the smell of cordite in the air. And, and uh, Patton says, I love it. God help me. I love it. And, and I thought when he said that, God help us if we love it. We must never love it. There's nothing ennobling about war. It's, it's terrible. It's degrading. It's man stripped of all of his, of the veneer of, of civilization and revealed for what, he, what it is. We must never love it. It's utterly unchristian to have, you know, our, our closets stocked with, uh, with uh, bayonets and grenades and 
and all sorts of war-making uh, tools, and to glory in that, and the idea if somebody comes into my house, I'm going to blow them away. You know, that, that's not Christian. It's only with the greatest of reluctance that we would ever engage in war. But it, it, it seems to me that what this passage is teaching, if, if we take the passage at face value, is that, that there are times when the state may have to go to war in order to maintain order and, and justice and to bring about peace. There may be no other alternative. The state has the right of national defense. They have the right to conscript and maintain armies. Of, of national defense and uh, to be ready to, to meet the attack of, of any aggressor. The alternative is, is slavery. We may not like it. We wish there was some other way, but it seems to me that's the realistic and the biblical approach to the issue of, of war and peace. Uh, Augustine put it like this, peace should be the object of your desire. War should be waged only as as a necessity and waged only that God may by it deliver men from necessity and preserve them in peace. For peace is not sought in order to be kindling a war, but war is waged in order that peace may be obtained. Augustine was the, was the first of a number of Christians to enunciate what came to be called rules of just war. And uh, there are a number of these, but there are three that I think are particularly appropriate. One is that, that war must have a just... Uh, just purpose. Uh, the purpose of war is to bring about peace. That's the only basis on which it can be justified. Secondly, uh, war must have uh, uh, a just, uh, as you put it, I've forgotten the term it's used, motive. There must be just motives. Uh, wars of aggression are wrong. Uh, we should never initiate war. Defensive wars are a necessity, but offensive wars are a moral uh, outrage. And third, just means, and this is the one that I think is most uh, important for our discussion this morning. There are two terms that are often used in, discussion, in discussing the issue of just means in war. They are proportionality and discrimination. Now, let me, let me explain what, what they mean. By proportionality, they mean that the injury inflicted on the enemy must be in proportion to the damage they have inflicted upon us. Uh, you know, the cry to nuke them, if they rattle their sabers, is a violation of, of just war. The, the amount of damage inflicted must be proportionate to the amount that we receive. The second principle is called the principle of discrimination. In other words, in going to war, we must discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. A war that results in the slaughter of of innocent people is, is wrong. Our uh, police system here locally is perhaps the best illustration of discriminate punishment of evildoers. The purpose of our uh, police force here in, in Boise is to capture and bring to trial and punish evildoers. And uh, their actions are limited in that they're directed against against criminals. It would be morally wrong to annihilate a whole block full of innocent people in order to get one criminal. So it's discriminate. And that's what uh, these Christian thinkers meant when they said that we should employ just means. The, the, the conflict should be limited to, 
to the extent that it's possible to, non, uh, to combat this, not to innocent, uh, the innocent citizenry. Now, it's this issue that has brought the, the question of nuclear warfare uh, into the forefront. Because nuclear warfare, by its very nature, is indiscriminate. Uh, in a sense, we, we hold one another's uh, citizens in, in hostage. Uh, we, we say to the USSR, uh, you, uh, you detonate a, a nuclear device over our cities, and uh, we have a few cities picked out, and we're going to waste a few million of your population. And there are many people that feel that this is a violation of the principle of, of just means, and therefore this is an unjust way to retaliate even though it's in, uh, in defense. Furthermore, some of these same people would say that the Russians are, though they are committed to world conquest by the Communist Manifesto, that they want to do so ideologically and through political infiltration, and they're not at all interested in initiating a, a war. They can't afford that sort of conflict. It would be too costly. There are many argue very persuasively along those lines. There are other Christians that say, no, that simply is not true. Historically, the Russians have been committed to aggression. When you look at Korea... Uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, and more recently uh, Afghanistan and Angola and Ethiopia. This, this has been their practice. So that they are indeed committed to uh, armed conflict. And therefore they must be stopped. And they have the bomb you know, with a big B. What are we to do? If we disarm, can we meet the threat of Soviet aggression with conventional weapons? Of course we can't. They would simply annihilate us if they went on the, on the offensive. So what do we do? And this explains this uh, mutual buildup of, of nuclear weapons. The uh, theory is that if we have enough uh, weapons and they're co roughly comparable, then we can deter the threat of, of Soviet aggression. Uh, the name that they have chosen, as you know, is Mutually Assured Destruction with the very appropriate acronym MAD, MAD. And there is a kind of craziness about, about the whole thing. Furthermore, when, when you stop and think about it, we, we are diverting enormous amount of funds into the arms race. I heard Mark Hatfield say a couple of weeks ago that over the next five years, we will spend $1,700,000,000 uh, on our war efforts. That, the, those, that size sum just staggers me. I don't even know what it represents. But at the same time, uh, we're having to uh, diminish the amount of money that goes into education and housing for the poor and, and for the aged and so forth. We all know that this is a problem. What to do? You know, guns or butter? Do we spend the money on our, our, the problems at home? Whether you believe the federal government should get involved or not is not the issue. There are just enormous amounts of money that are be, being diverted into the war effort when the legitimate needs of people are, are going by the board. What do we do? I don't think anybody knows. I really don't. I think we're at an impasse. There is no human wisdom that will get us out of the mess that we're in. I have a file that thick in my office of material that I've been reading over the past six months on this issue. And I'm convinced nobody knows what to do. They're all at sea. What seems to be the safest course is some sort of bilateral disarmament that's verifiable, some phasing down, you know, in such a way that we can, we can find out if the Russians are indeed, uh, they have stopped developing nuclear weapons. But how do you do that in a closed society? 
We can't even do it uh, with Israel. We, we think Israel has, has a hydrogen device, but who knows? And they're more or less friendly toward us. How in the world could we ever verify what the USSR is doing? And at the same time, there has to be a strong defensive posture, many people believe, because, uh, because of, the, of the real threat of, of nuclear uh, aggression from the Soviets. Well, what do we do? What are the answers? What occurred to me in thinking about it over the last couple of weeks is that, that we're in the position of the magician's apprentice who started messing around with the elements while the master was away from the, from the uh, laboratory, and he set in motion forces that he, he couldn't control, and I think that's precisely what's happened. As a matter of fact, I think, now I'm not a prophet, I'm just telling you what I think, but I think that the current arms race is the judgment of God upon us. That we have long left God out of our lives. And God has just, he just let us go. Taking his hands off of us. All right, you, you want to make a mess out of things? I'll, I'll let you. His designs are always redemptive. You know, he, he wants to draw us back to him. And he's using the consequences of our own sowing to, uh, to draw us back. And I think that's precisely what's happening. I don't think anyone has any answers. Now, there are two wrong responses, and I think one proper one. One is to give way to fear. People are really frightened today, people who know. And people. And the more you know, the more frightened you, you're inclined to become. Uh, I think this is particularly true among young people. So I'm going to ask a high school person here some months back what they wanted to be when they grew up, and, and, they, and their answer was alive. And that's the way so many young people are, are feeling today. They're scared out of their wits. I'm convinced that that's what's behind the current peace movement. It's fear. Fear is not a proper motivation for Christians. It never is. Our stance is hope. Jesus said over and over again to the, to the disciples, Fear not. Fear not. I have overcome the world. Solzhen Nietzsche put it in his Nobel uh, address. One word of truth outweighs the world. And that's Jesus' one word of truth is, don't be afraid. The other alternative is, a, a, I don't know how to describe it, it's a kind of a gleeful response to, uh, to every terrible thing that seems to be happening to our, our nation. It, it's represented in the attitude, you know, let the non-Christians crisp themselves. We're going up in the rapture. And, uh, you know... We're not going to be here, so we don't care what they do with the earth. They can blow it up for all we, we care. And that strikes me as a very unchristian uh, reaction to this, this sort of thing. Uh, what should we do? I'm going to make four suggestions. And uh, they're merely that, suggestions. The first is, a, is, a, is absolutely a personal opinion. Okay? You, you can disagree with me violently if you want to. But it's my personal opinion. Number one. I want to be supportive of our administration at this present time. I think the last thing they need is for us to undercut their confidence. I don't think they're right in everything they're doing, but who of us knows what's right? You know, what, what sort of missiles will uh, represent a rough equivalency to, to the USSR arsenal? I, I don't know. They don't know. How can I know? So I, I simply have to, to some extent, trust them. I know that most of them are not Christians, but yet I believe that we're headed on the right course. Every president since World War II has been working hard toward a bilateral 
verifiable disarmament. And that seems to me to be the most sensible approach to this thing. But at the same time, maintaining a strong defensive posture. I don't like the idea of, of nuclear warfare. It's horrible to contemplate, but I don't know what else to do at this stage of the game. And it takes enormous amounts of money. I don't know what to do at this point. But I know that anything less than, uh, than a strong deterrent is going to mean destruction for the, for the United States. I really believe that. And so despite the costs and the horror and the terror of this thing, I, I think we have to maintain a strong defense, whatever that means. And I want to be supportive of our, of our administration while they work toward that goal, but at the same time encourage them toward, toward peace in every way that I can. To work toward Assault 3 or uh, encourage them in the present uh, set of talks at Geneva or, or whatever. And pray like crazy that we don't have to use any of those weapons. Uh, I saw a cartoon here a few months ago of a bunch of cavemen sitting around in a cave, and they all had little clubs over their shoulders, and in the corner there was this humongous uh, club. And one says to the other, boy, I hope we never have to use that thing. <coughs> and, and that's somewhat the way I feel. I pray that we'll never have to use it. I, uh, right after the first service, uh, a retired uh, Air Force officer came up to talk to me, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I was one of the guys that sat down in the silo with my hand on the key. And he said, I prayed every day that I wouldn't have to use it. I, I think we need to support those men. There, there is terror in high places, believe me. And these men need our support and our encouragement. The second thing I would say is that we need to be an example of peacemaking in our own personal lives. It's very clear from Scripture that in terms of our personal enemies, we need to turn the other cheek. We need to be nonviolent. We need to be gentle, quiet, loving people. That means we need to work on our marriages, all of our ruptured relationships. And within the church, we need to uh, make peace. You know, to me, it's, it's craziness. All of the uh, inner, uh, the inner nascing, the, you know, the undercurrent of, of, uh, of uh, distrust and uneasiness toward one another and battles over what mode of baptism we'll use, you know, whether we'll dip, dip or dunk or pour or, you know, or what's going to happen uh, eschatologically. You know, these are all questions that we disagree over. And it is dead wrong for us as Christians to be breaking up into warring camps uh, and call ourselves peacemakers. The only validity we have in the eyes of the world is the example that we set in that we are truly peaceful in our relationships to one another. And third, uh, I would say that we need to use this time in order to introduce people to the Prince of Peace. I, uh, again, I find that most people are, are terror-stricken. You know, it is literally today among many people, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And they need to know the Prince of Peace and the peace that passes all understanding. Paul says, redeem the time because the days are evil. He doesn't say redeem the time because the days are short, as we read it. He says, evil days are days of opportunity. And the more tense things become, the more opportunities there will be for us to proclaim the gospel and to introduce people to the Prince of Peace. And fourthly, I would say we need to pray for peace. Now, don't dismiss that as a bunch of pietistic nonsense. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Do we? <coughs> Do we pray for the USSR, for Red China, for the people in Ethiopia today, other places where, where our enemies hold, uh, hold people in, in oppression? 
And secondly, Paul said in, in 1 Timothy that men everywhere ought to lift up holy hands and pray for their leaders. Do we? We pray for our president, for our legislators, for the members of our Supreme Court, that God's will will be done through them and peace will reign in our nation. Uh, I'm a little frustrated because our time is long gone. There's so many other things I'd like to say, but let's uh, get about the business of being God's peacemakers in this world. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit that, that we have no final and ultimate answers. You're the one that we have to trust for wisdom as we make our way through this world. We simply ask that we would, would choose the right course and do so on the basis of the truth that you reveal. We, we love you. We want to serve you in that way and ask that we may do so. In Jesus' name, amen.